The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of 1 Peter. Today, the next passage we come to is 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 8. It says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Mike. Let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet, and a light for our paths. So would you shine your light brightly this morning? Help us to see everything we need to see about who you are, what you've done, what you promise, what you teach, and what you desire for our lives. Lord, minister to us. Illuminate our hearts by your Holy Spirit. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. When most people think of the individuals in our society who enjoy high and privileged positions, they usually think of Hollywood celebrities, social media influencers, political leaders, media moguls, business tycoons, and maybe academic leaders. These are the commonly acknowledged elites of society, the the movers and shakers, uh, the ones who have their hands on the levers of cultural influence. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, scrolling through the news feed on my phone, and saw an article published by a well-known media source about Taylor Swift writing a comment on a TikTok video. Like, that was the whole article. Like, Taylor Swift apparently wrote some comment on a TikTok video that was so newsworthy in their estimation that they thought it worthwhile to write an entire article just about this comment. Now, I don't know what the comment was since... uh, wasn't really interested enough to click on that article, Uh, but I'll tell you one thing, that no one has ever even thought of writing any article on any comment I've ever written on social media, not that there have been that many, nor have they probably thought about writing any articles about your comments either. And uh, there's a good reason for that. It's because we're not Taylor Swift, right? Nor are Uh, most of us in this room, or maybe any of us, generally regarded as people of major consequence or influence in society. Just to be 
totally blunt, most people would say that in comparison to these cultural elites, that you and I are basically nobodies. Not only that, I think it's pretty clear that being a Christian in our present society, it doesn't really do anything to help our social standing, and in many circles is actually a mark against us. Uh, There are many people who don't think more of us for being Christians. They think less of us. Some uh, would even look upon us with disdain. In that regard, we're not all that different from the original readers of 1 Peter, who were experiencing persecution for their faith. They were despised and were widely considered to be among the lowest of the low. Yet in our main passage, Peter says something about his readers that's quite remarkable by any estimation and even astounding for some of them, probably. Uh, And uh, Peter actually writes not just one thing, but numerous things, starting in verse 4 and continuing through verse 10, describing the incomparable privileges that Christians enjoy in and through Jesus. And these privileges are so rich and glorious, it's actually going to take us two weeks to work through them all, and even that will involve moving through them relatively quickly. So we'll look at verses 4 through 8 this week, and then at verses 9 and 10 next week. The main idea of both of these passages is, as I stated, that Christians enjoy incomparable privileges in and through Jesus. And these privileges are so magnificent that we could even say that the the lowliest and most ordinary Christian possesses greater honor and status and prestige and privilege than anyone who's not a Christian could ever dream of. Even Taylor Swift, if she's not a Christian. And so let's travel through this passage together and see what these privileges entail. Peter first lays some groundwork in verse 4. He writes, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. And then goes on in the next verse to describe their spiritual privileges. Now, the him Peter's talking about when he says, as you come to him, is undoubtedly a reference to Jesus. And so the first thing Peter wants his readers to know is that they enjoy these stunning privileges as they draw close to Jesus and, in, and grow in their relationship with him. And, uh, you know, that's really what Christianity is all about, right? Being a Christian isn't primarily just about being a moral person or engaging in a certain set of religious duties or even practicing various spiritual disciplines. At its most foundational level, Christianity is about enjoying a relationship with Jesus and indeed growing in that relationship. Uh, you, You might even compare it, at least in some respects, to a marriage. Because there are various practical arrangements that are involved in a marriage. Uh, For example, a married couple 
has to make financial arrangements and determine how to handle their money together. They also have to make certain living arrangements and determine who's going to do what around the house. However, even though marriage involves uh, these kinds of practical arrangements, you can't reduce marriage to these arrangements. Uh, Marriage is so much more than just these kinds of practical things. It's first and foremost a relationship, even a covenant relationship. And in a similar manner, that's the, what's at the very core of Christianity as well. Being a Christian certainly involves observing certain principles of morality, being involved in a church, and engaging in various spiritual disciplines like reading the Bible and praying. However, just make sure you're not reducing Christianity to those things. Make sure that your focus isn't on any of these habits as ends in themselves, but rather that you're focused on knowing Jesus and delighting in Jesus, coming ever closer in your relationship with Jesus. In the words of Peter here in verse 4, Christianity is about coming to him, drawing closer to him, growing in our relationship with him. Everything else is simply a means to that end. Peter then uh, refers to Jesus as a living stone. As we'll see in the subsequent verses, Jesus is the foundation stone, or more specifically, the cornerstone of God's new temple. We'll talk more about that later. And Peter goes on to describe Jesus as rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Jesus was rejected primarily by the Jewish religious leaders of his day because he didn't conform to their expectations and preconceived notions about what the Messiah would be like. They were looking for a Messiah who would lead their nation to overthrow the Roman Empire and into an unprecedented golden age of worldwide prominence. But Jesus came with much different intentions. And because of that, the Jewish religious leaders and most of the Jewish people rejected him. Yet Peter tells us that even though Jesus was rejected by men, he was nevertheless chosen and precious in God's sight. And at the end of the day, that's what really matters, right? Jesus was sent into the world by God the Father for a specific purpose, to rescue us from our sins. And if being faithful to that purpose resulted in the majority of his own people rejecting him, then so be it. Because God's approval is way more important than people's approval. And that's a good principle for us to keep in mind in our own lives as well. Our focus should be not on pleasing people, but on pleasing God. I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 1.10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. It's pretty direct, isn't it? If I were still trying to please man... I would not 
be a servant of Christ. It's impossible to be a people pleaser and a faithful Christian at the same time. The two are mutually exclusive. And you can rest assured that there will be times as Christians when our loyalties are put to the test. Maybe we find ourselves under pressure to do something dishonest at work in order to increase the company's profits or use someone's preferred pronouns that don't correspond to their God-given gender or keep quiet about our Christian faith in the workplace or participate in a sinful behavior such as gossip or excessive drinking in order to gain social acceptance. Whenever you find yourself in these or any similar situations, just remind yourself of, Paul, of Paul's words here, right? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And then returning to our main passage, it's okay if we're rejected by men because Jesus was rejected by men also. And yet in God's sight, he was chosen and precious. And Peter goes on to say in verse 5 that you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And uh, this is where we start getting into the incomparable privileges that are ours in and through Jesus. Peter employs three metaphors in this verse to describe these privileges, all three of which are taken from the Old Testament. The first metaphor is the temple. Just like Jesus is the living stone, as we learned in verse 4, Christians also, we can see here, are living stones. Uh, we share in Christ's life, his resurrection life, courses through our veins. He's living, we're living. And not only that, Peter says, we're being built up as a spiritual house. Uh, this spiritual house is a reference to the temple. In the Old Testament, God gave his people specific instructions for constructing a temple. And then after the temple was completed, he made that temple his dwelling place. Of course, it's not that God wasn't omnipresent or everywhere existent any longer. Um, he, he certainly was. But what we might call his manifest presence was in that temple. The temple was also the only place where God's people were allowed to offer sacrifices. That made it the focal point of Israel's religious observances. It's you know, basically where all the action took place. Now, of course, when Jesus came, he made that temple obsolete. Yet, according to Peter, there's now actually a new temple, one that's even greater than the first. And that new temple is us, those of us who are Christians. So just like God dwelled in the physical temple of the Old Testament, he likewise dwells in Christians today. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, Paul writes, 
Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So our body, Paul says, is a temple because it's the dwelling place of God. The Holy Spirit of God actually dwells within us. And yet, there's also more to it than that. As we look at what Peter writes, back in verse 5 of our main passage, we see it's not just that every Christian individually is a temple, but that all Christians collectively are a temple as well. Just think about that. For those who are Christians, every one of us is a living stone, Peter says, and we're in the process of being built up together as a new temple with God himself dwelling in us and among us. This is a great reminder uh, that being a Christian isn't about having a relationship with Jesus just on your own or in isolation from other Christians. Like that was never the way it was meant to be. Um, Even though our relationship with Jesus was certainly meant to be personal, it was by no means meant to be private. And there are plenty of indications of that in the New Testament. One of them being right here. Uh, According to Peter, it takes all of us, like, together to form this new temple. So you, each one of you as a Christian, is our living stone. That's designed to fit with other living stones in order to form something glorious. In other words, God's purpose and design for you as a Christian is to be a part of a local church. And not just to inconspicuously slip in and slip out on Sundays, but to really become a a part, a meaningful part of that church, a part of the relational fabric of that church. You know, maybe you're here this morning, and uh, you're quite confident that you're a Christian, but are nevertheless feeling weary, defeated, discouraged, or simply unmotivated. Now, there are undoubtedly a lot of reasons why a Christian might feel that way, but could one of those reasons be that you're simply not connected enough with other Christians in the context of a healthy church? Could it be that you've effectively cut yourself off from the very thing that God's provided and designed to minister to you in the midst of your struggles? It'd be like, kind of like someone wondering why their phone isn't working. But then when you, you talk to them, ask some questions, you discover they're not plugging it, it in to charge it. I mean, that's what happens when you don't plug in your phone, right? It doesn't work very well. And again, I'm not just talking about the need for us to show up on Sundays, but really a need to deliberately pursue meaningful relationships with others in the church uh, through things like, well, community groups, of course, and also discipling relationships and other opportunities for involvement uh, that we offer. Listen, God didn't design you to live in isolation. He designed you as a living stone to be 
built together with other living stones. And in that way, come to build a new spiritual temple. And this temple is, by its very nature as a temple, the very dwelling place of God. In addition to that, the second metaphor uh, that Peter uses to describe the privileges Christians enjoy is the priesthood. In the middle of verse 5, he refers to Christians as a holy priesthood. During Old Testament times, priests had several responsibilities that included teaching the law of Moses, maintaining the temple, and uh, even presiding as judges over certain legal cases. Yet their most important responsibility was offering sacrifices on behalf of the people. Priests were the only ones God permitted to offer sacrifices. And so if you were an ordinary Israelite, let's say, and you wanted or needed to offer a sacrifice, well, you would have to bring that sacrifice to a priest so that he could offer the sacrifice on your behalf. In addition, only the priests were allowed to go into a room within the temple compound called the holy place. And so the priests enjoyed these rare privileges that the rest of the Israelites didn't. In addition, only a select few were eligible to become priests. So it's not like today where if you want to go into a particular career field, you just you know, get the appropriate training or education and go into that field. No, in order to be a priest during Old Testament times, you had to first of all be from the tribe of Levi. And even more specifically than that, you had to be a descendant of Aaron. And God was serious about that. Uh, For example, in Numbers 16, when a guy named Korah and his associates, who weren't descendants of Aaron, they rebelliously tried to force their way into the priesthood and become priests, God caused the ground that they were standing on to literally split apart and swallow them up, and it says that they, quote, went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. So, uh, yeah, God was serious about that, that only certain people could be priests. Uh, This privilege of being a priest was reserved for a select few among God's people. And yet, we learn here in verse 5, that the priestly privileges that were formerly reserved for a select few are now given to every Christian. And when you think about it, they're now given in even greater measure. Because through Jesus, we now possess even greater closeness and proximity to God than priests of the Old Testament ever enjoyed. For example... The Old Testament teaches that only one of the priests, called the high priest, could enter a room within the holy place. So you have the holy place, I I described earlier, which was a, a bigger room within the temple compound, but then you have an even smaller room within that holy place called the most holy place, or sometimes the holy of holies. And this high priest could only enter that room once a year in order to offer a specific 
sacrifice. And so only one priest out of all of of God's people could enter his presence, and he could only do so once a year. But, as we've already discussed, those of us who are Christians, every single one of us enjoys even greater proximity to God than that. And we enjoy this proximity continuously. We actually have God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit dwelling within our hearts. Like, what a thought. It just doesn't get any closer than that. Moreover, as we compare Old Testament priests to New Testament Christians, there are several notable parallels that are worth observing. First, God was incredibly gracious in his choice of those who would serve as priests. Uh, Priests, you'll remember, were from the tribe of Levi, which was actually one of the least respected tribes of Israel. Levi, the, the, the person of Levi from whom the tribe came, he was known for his fierce and excessive violence. We saw that, right, in our sermon series through Genesis. Uh, and that was so bad, his father Jacob, you may remember, actually pronounced a curse on Levi and his descendants in Genesis 49, 5 through 7. And yet, God graciously chose people from the tribe of Levi to be the priests of Israel. Likewise, the Bible teaches that you and I were thoroughly sinful and deserving of nothing but God's wrath. And yet, in his mercy, God rescued us from our sin and gave us the privilege of serving him as a part of this new priesthood. In addition, uh, priests of the Old Testament had to be cleansed of their sin before they could assume their priestly duties. This cleansing ceremony was quite elaborate and is described in Leviticus 8. It involved ceremonial washings, uh, a sin offering, a burnt offering, and, and a few other sacrificial offerings as well. Likewise, in order to be included in this new priesthood today, we have to be cleansed of our sin through the perfect and ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Furthermore, Old Testament priests had to be clothed in the proper garments. God himself prescribed what these garments should look like and required that the priest wear them in order to distinguish the priests from everyone else. Likewise, 2 Corinthians 5.21 teaches that Christians are those who have been clothed, as it were, with the righteousness of Christ. And finally, Old Testament priests were anointed for their service. And this was done with oil and symbolized God's empowerment on them. Similarly, Christians receive an anointing of sorts from the Holy Spirit. 1 John 2.27 actually uses the word anointing to describe what we've received. And so just like Old Testament priests, Christians today have been graciously chosen by God, cleansed of our sins, clothed in priestly garments, 
and anointed for ministry. And of course, the great privilege of our priestly status is that we actually have direct access to God. Like we don't have to go through an intermediary to get to God. We've got direct access. You know, if you have a Catholic background, you don't have to go through Mary or pray through one of the saints to get to God. You can go straight to God in your prayers. We can experience the closest communion with God directly and enjoy actually even closer contact with God than the high priest did in the Holy of Holies. That's what I would call a privileged position. In addition, keep in mind that priests in the Old Testament essentially functioned as intermediaries between God and the general Israelite population. As I mentioned, um, ordinary Israelites had to go through priests to offer sacrifices. Similarly, we as Christians function as intermediaries as well. God has given us the high and holy calling of connecting other people, those who aren't yet Christians, with him. There are countless individuals all around us whom God loves dearly and has graciously chosen to be among his people. And he's given us the privilege of sharing the gospel with them and leading them toward him. That's the way in which we function as God's intermediaries. And, uh, you know, that should be a part of our mindset. Us being Christians isn't just about enjoying our immense privileges in the midst of some kind of insulated holy huddle that's closed off to those outside the faith. Instead, it's about deliberately going out of our way to reach out to others and show them the love of Jesus and share with them about the rescue Jesus offers. That's a critical component of our priestly ministry. And uh, just like everything else in our priestly ministry, I tell you, it is an incredible privilege. Have you ever thought about that? Like, what a privilege it is for us to have this God-given ministry and calling of connecting people with him. And if we really have that mentality, it'll have a profound effect on the way we interact with just about everyone, the way we interact with our neighbors on our street, the way we interact, yeah, with guests who join us on Sundays, and certainly the way we interact with our friends and family. And finally, a third metaphor that Peter uses to describe the privileges Christians enjoy is sacrifices. Peter says that we are being built up to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So just as Old Testament priests offered physical sacrifices, God gives us the privilege of offering spiritual sacrifices. 
What does that mean? Well, one of these sacrifices is a sacrifice of praise. Hebrews 13, 15 says that through him, Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. We also read about the financial resources we give being a sacrifice that is dedicated to God. In Philippians 4.18, Paul writes that I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. So the, the Philippians were supporting Paul as a missionary, right? They were giving money, and he calls them, here it is, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. In addition, uh, Paul also talks about his converts, people who came to faith through his ministry as a sacrifice that he offers to God. He writes in Romans 15, verses 15 and 16, but on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the, now isn't this an interesting phrase, priestly service, there it is, intermediaries with people who are far from God, priestly service, of the gospel of God, so that, and here it is, the offering of the Gentiles, the sacrificial offering may be acceptable to God, um, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So we're called to offer to God the sacrifice of praise, the sacrifice of wealth, and the sacrifice, as it were, of converts. And then lastly, we're called to offer the sacrifice even of our very selves. In Romans 12:1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Friends, all of who we are is to be dedicated to God as a living sacrifice. Not we have our part and God has his, but all of who we are should be dedicated to him. And so those are the three privileges that we enjoy as uh, Christians that are mentioned here, being living stones that comprise a new temple, being members of a new priesthood, and being able to offer sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices to God. And again, the reason these are such lofty privileges is because they place us in such close proximity to God. Like, we get to be in the very presence of the God of the universe and enjoy direct access to him. What greater privilege could there be? So going back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, we might never breathe the rarefied air of the Oval Office or sit behind the chancellor's desk at a prestigious university, or have news articles written about the most mundane details of our lives, right? We might even be looked down upon at times by those who consider themselves to be above us. That's okay. Because we understand that as Christians, we actually enjoy a position of far greater privilege 
than anyone else in the world. And the reason we enjoy this privileged position isn't because of ourselves or our own merit or achievements, but because of Jesus. Like, he's the reason we are what we are and enjoy what we enjoy. And we see that taught at the end of verse 5. Peter says that these privileges are ours through Jesus Christ. This is then explained in the subsequent verses, starting in verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Uh, the word for at the beginning of the verse indicates the explanatory nature of what follows. And what follows is a quote from Isaiah 28, 16, which speaks of a chosen and precious cornerstone that God lays in Zion, which is just a word for Jerusalem. In ancient times, uh, a cornerstone was by far the most important part of a building. It was a very large and carefully selected stone that builders would lay down first as they were constructing the foundation. And they would always set and position the cornerstone very carefully because they would then use that stone as their guide for all the other stones in the foundation and actually in the whole rest of the building. So all the other stones that were used to construct the building would be positioned with reference to and in alignment with the cornerstone. And the clear implication of our passage here in 1 Peter is that Jesus is that cornerstone. He's not only the most prominent or important stone in the building, but is actually the stone upon which the structural soundness of the entire building depends. The church is built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. Jesus lived a life of perfect, sinless obedience to God's law died a sacrificial death in our place and to take the punishment for our sins, and then was raised on the third day as a demonstration of the fact that the God the Father had indeed accepted his sacrifice as payment for sin. And it's only through Jesus that we enjoy the privileges that we have and ultimately that we enjoy hope for eternity. And that leaves us with two options. We read about them in verses, I'll repeat verse 6 and go through verse 8. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And so the two options are believing and not believing. And the difference between these two paths, it couldn't be more striking. 
On the one hand, verse 6 tells us that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And verse 7 refers to the honor that those who believe in him will one day enjoy. And yet, on the other hand, the result of not believing is that the very stone that God intended to be a cornerstone, the very stone he intended to be a blessing for us and a foundation for our lives, it becomes instead something much different, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And this stumbling here isn't just any minor little trip. This is a, a stumbling that has eternal implications, right? It's a terrible fall that has eternal consequences, namely suffering in hell for all eternity. And so the question is, which option will you choose? Will you believe in Jesus in the sense of putting your trust in him to rescue you from your sins? Or will you reject him? Friends, there's no other option and no middle ground between those two options. At the end of the day, there are only two kinds of people in this world. Those who are trusting in Jesus and have hope for eternity and those who are rejecting Jesus and at that moment at least headed for eternal judgment. So which category? Just ask yourself this morning, which category are you in? And if you determine you are in that second category, let me invite you in the strongest terms possible to put your faith in Jesus and become a part of his people, his redeemed people, even this very day. 